0: ever wondered what monetary policy is? Who's in charge of the national debt? Or why brick countries should concern you? Well, you're in the right place. Hello, and welcome to It's the Economy, a new podcast series brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm Nicola Walton, and I'm not an economist. But I do think it's important that economics is accessible. The economy impacts every aspect of our lives, from how we work to where we live. But how much do we really understand about how big economic concepts and decisions affect us? In this podcast, I'll be breaking down complex economic ideas, so in the time it takes to have a cup of coffee, you'll understand what they mean and why they matter to us. In each episode, I'll be joined by an economics expert to talk us through it all. This week, we're looking at the green economy, and my guest is Anne Pettifer, a British economist who's perhaps best known for correctly predicting the financial crisis of 2007. Her current work focuses on the global financial system and sustainable development. Welcome to the podcast, Anne.
1: Thank you very much, Nicola. Happy to be here.
0: Well, let's start with some definitions. Um, What do we actually mean by a green economy?
1: I think a green economy is a sustainable one, one uh, that lives with the ecosystem's limits, if you like. And so that has to be one which recognises the finite nature of the resources that we use and therefore adjusts our activity, our economic activity, to those limits.
0: And are there specific sectors within that economy that we'd sort of recognise?
1: Yes. I mean, the economy is divided up into the monetary system, the fiscal system, if you like, the real economic system where economic activity takes place. And essential to all of that is the monetary system. The monetary system is a system, our system of money, our system of issuing credit, and our system, if you like, of managing uh, money, money flows, and and credit, both at, at, the, at the level of, of the public sector but also the private sector. And unless we, and my argument is that unless we manage the monetary system, the issuance of credit, it will not be possible to manage. Consumption and production. And consumption and production has to be managed to fit within the limits of the ecosystem.
0: So you've written about the Green New Deal. Tell me more about
1: that. The Green New Deal is about transforming the global economy, but also our domestic economy, in such a way as to make the environment sustainable for all of us, in such a way as to make it possible for the planet to survive the degree to the extent to which we've already overwarmed it, if you like. So the Green New Deal understands that the economy and the ecosystem are structurally bound together, and that if we want to save the world, we have to begin by changing the economy in order to be able to protect the ecosystem.
0: Well, the United Nations Environmental Programme argues that to be green, an economy must not only be efficient but also fair – um, do you think that's achievable?
1: Oh, absolutely. I think the way our economy is currently structured is to be unfair. It's structured to benefit, if you like, the 1%. Um, the deregulation of the, of the monetary system, the deregulation of the financial system, the removal, of, if you like, of public authority over the system into the hands of private authority, uh, moving from the government, if you like, to the City of London or Wall Street, all of those have made the economy very unfair because Wall Street, of course, and the City of London have the interest of their, their market participants, shareholders, if you like, the head of the queue. On the other hand, those who have to work by a, a hand or brain, if you like, have found their wages falling in real terms um, and be, or being stagnant. And it's that divide between the owners of assets and the, and the workers, the, the owners of labour, on the other hand, which has been made much worse under the current system and led to massive inequality. And we can change that. You know, this is, this is a system that was designed by economists, by human beings, and it can be redesigned.
0: And um, do you think the political will's there, though, now?
1: I think that is beginning to happen. It's extraordinary what is happening in the United States right now, where Joe Biden, for example, is arguing that it wasn't wealth that built America, but it was workers, what he calls the middle class that built America. And he's proposed a new uh, approach uh, to the economy based on what he calls full employment. Now, people think we do already have full employment, but in fact, we don't. We have precarious employment, low-paid employment, and 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 part-time employment, large, large swathes of part-time, insecure employment. And he's beginning to argue that, no, we've got to alter that balance of power between workers and employers. We've got to have a full employment policy, which gives workers greater power relative to their employers. That is a sea change. That is a dramatic paradigm shift.
0: It all sounds very revolutionary. So if we, if we have a, a complete change in favour of workers and also the environment, can the world economy still prosper?
1: Nicola, it really isn't revolutionary. It's pretty damn mainstream. It's pretty damn mainstream that everyone should enjoy the fruits of the economy. We think it's radical because it's so different from the way things are at the moment. But yes, of course, the economy can prosper. One of the problems with having... 1% One percent earning enormous sums of money, which they don't spend and they don't invest because the one percent tend on the whole not to do that, while the ninety-nine percent earn very little and don't spend and don't invest or save their money because because they've got to just use it to live on. That means the economy as a whole is suffering from what economists call underconsumption. Now, many agree, and economists think think that underconsumption is a good thing. But it really means that we can't afford our own product. We can't afford the things we make ourselves. And as a result, economies are oriented towards exports. And that distorts the global economy as well, because the global economy now is very heavily oriented towards exporting. And the companies that export are the 1%. They're the ones that are doing really well. If we reorient the economy so that there's more domestic economic activity, that does two things. It, it means that more people are able to participate in the economy It also and to, to gain from the economy. And that benefits everybody, as Biden said in a re- recent speech. But it also means that we're not uh, engaged in a process where we're all trying to out-compete each other at a global level by exporting more than somebody else.
0: In terms of greening the economy, some economists have argued that the way forward is to give a value to things like carbon, which is now leading to carbon trading. Is that an effective way, do you think, to reduce environmental risk?
1: I personally don't think so. It's a form of taxation. And, and it's, it's based on the attitude that we have a massive problem and everybody is responsible for it. And that is not true. Whereas my approach is that governments should, in the first instance, provide alternative systems, more sustainable systems, before we decide to tax people for the use of carbon. But the second point I want to make is that 50 percent of uh, toxic emissions are generated by the top 10 percent, and the top 1 percent generate a lot more than do most ordinary people in Africa, in Europe, in, in Latin America. And by punishing all of us in Africa, Europe and Latin America and leaving the 1% or the 10% to carry on, for example, flying to conferences on on climate change in their private jets, we're really not going to tackle the problem.
0: Each week, we look at a historical example of this episode's theme. Today, it's the green economy. While some countries still prefer to rely on their own resource-rich supplies of oil and gas for energy or import fuel others have turned to the relatively new technology of renewable energy. My producer, Lovjeet Daliwal, takes a look at what Tunisia has been up to and how it's been embracing the concept of a greener economy.
2: Over 15 years ago, Tunisia decided to invest seriously in clean energy and set up a fund to help increase the use of renewable energy technologies. In just three years, from 2005 to 2008, Tunisia's government managed to save $1.1 billion in energy bills, a pretty good return on an initial investment of $200 million. In 2009, the government unveiled a national solar energy plan, allowing to increase its use of energy from renewable resources. The solar plan includes the use of solar panels, which captures energy from the sun transforming it into electricity, solar water heating systems, as well as solar power units for generating electricity. The energy savings from the solar energy plan alone, over a seven-year period, is thought to be in the region of just over 20%. And here's another statistic. Tunisia managed to reduce the amount of CO2, it emits by 1.3 million tonnes a year. The investment in this green area has also boosted the economy, with job growth and reducing the country's dependency on fuel imports. And that's not all. Although 97% of Tunisia's power supply is from conventional power, the government aims to generate 30% of power from renewable sources by 2030.
0: So, Anne, do you think 30% is an achievable target for Tunisia?
1: Whether or not it's achievable, it is absolutely imperative. Scientists are beginning to tell us that we are already way beyond the level of emissions that will keep the global temperature below 1.5 degrees. A planet that warms by 2 degrees centigrade will not be a livable planet. And so, whatever we may think... We, to live within the scientific guidelines being offered to us at the moment requires a kind of urgency that makes makes it necessary for Tunisia for example to think of even a bigger uh, cut in emissions uh, by 2030
0: and with the rising population a 3 billion more middle class consumers are expected by 2030 there'll be greater demand for resources so how can we prepare for that
1: by cutting our rates of consumption. By, and I speak again about the top 10%. The top 10% expect to achieve levels of consumption that are unheard of in, in, in historic terms. Uh, you know, we expect to have every possible uh, gadget. We expect to renew those gadgets every year. So I'm arguing a Green New Deal is going to mean, if you like, a more sustainable way of living, which means a simpler way of living. And as a way of living, which I define as growing our own green beans, you know, we currently expect to have green beans on our dinner plates almost every day of the year for 365 days a year. We expect people in Kenya on low wages to draw on Kenya's water table to grow green beans and then to put them in an airplane and fly them to us on a daily basis so that they're absolutely fresh. That is a level of consumption that has to change. We have to learn to become more self-sufficient. You know, we've got to have slow levels of consumption. That is going to require radical change in the way we live and a much simpler way in the way we live.
2: Stat of the Week
0: Now it's time for our Stat of the Week. Each week, we'll be bringing you a figure that's often quoted in the press and seen as a key indicator of the health of the overall economy. This week, we're looking at the global green growth, which before the pandemic was estimated to be $7.87 trillion. How significant do you think this figure is? I
1: think it's it's really quite insignificant. If you think that annual income, the global income, is about $87 trillion, this is a tiny proportion of our annual income that we're devoting towards green activity, we have to up that number quite dramatically.
0: And global green growth, what does that actually mean? What does that encompass?
1: Well, again, you know, we're, we're in, in, in the realm of language here. Green growth implies that we can go on expanding economic activity ad infinitum. So we've got to end the, the concept of green growth. We've got to talk much more about sustainable activity. That was
0: Stat of the Week. And this week, we were looking at global green growth. If things like renewable energy and environmental protection and low carbon goods and services are growing in terms of demand, and there's new products coming from financial markets in the sort of green area, isn't that a sort of a good way of of boosting the economy overall?
1: I'm someone who believes that for an economy to be sustainable, it has to be a full employment economy. And what that means is that what we do by human labor does not necessarily result in greenhouse gas emissions. And therefore, it's better for us to undertake labor-intensive activity than fossil fuel-intensive activities. So if we're going to have more labour-intensive activities which are not emitting greenhouse gas emissions, that's sustainable. If we're going to get out of our cars and onto our bicycles and use our own labour to move, that is more sustainable activity. If we have more of that kind of activity, that's okay.
0: But you don't sound too optimistic about the immediate future.
1: I, I am quite pessimistic because, you know, as I say, emissions are still rising, The temperature is still rising the arctic is still melting so we're seeing these extreme weather events take place but we're still not acting uh, radically enough and fast enough to to ensure that uh, we keep temperatures well below 1.5 degrees centigrade
0: Anne Pettifer thank you for coming on to our podcast
1: it's been a real pleasure thank you for having me
0: If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to subscribe and rate and review It's the Economy on Apple Podcasts. It lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. I'm Nicola Walton, and you've been listening to It's the Economy, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. This podcast was produced by Lavjeet Daliwal, with technical assistance from Mark Roberts and Catherine Hughes. The executive producer was Farah Jasset.